Good evening, and welcome to our first feature presentation for the first week of Wait, Fright, Minutes. The next three weeks leading up to Halloween, we'll be talking about horror film history and its unique relationship with the Sunshine State. For a place so sunshiny, you'd be surprised how many terrifying tales there are to be told on our shores. This week is our first picture, a launching point for the entire genre of horror filmmaking. It's 1963's Blood Feast. Roaming the streets of Miami, stalking for his next victim, a man called Ramses is searching for his next bite, hoping to hunt humans to use in his terrifying ritual. Is it a good movie? No. But it is a Florida movie, and a defining chapter in the story of the horror genre, and a defining chapter in filmmaking history in our dark swamp state. So settle in, grab your pumpkin coffee, and enjoy your feature presentation, Blood Feast. Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to witness some scenes from the next attraction to play this theater. This picture, truly one of the most unusual ever filmed, contains scenes which under no circumstances should be viewed by anyone with a heart condition or anyone who is easily upset. Hi folks, I'm Nick Delisand Boo. No, no, excuse me, Nick Delisandro, and this is Wait Fright Minutes, a spooky podcast about Florida by your friendly neighborhood spooky Floridian. This is the first of three episodes celebrating horror movies and Florida and the amazing stories that occur when people want to use Florida as a backdrop for their thrills and chills. If you are afraid of scary movies, do not worry. There are no true horrors to be hidden within. No jump scares, no scary, horrifying descriptions of the things in these movies, no nasty, unsettling elements. This is all about Florida and the people that use Florida to tell their stories. I just want to tell you about this genre and the wonderful, bizarre ways that it connects to our state to get you properly in the spooky Halloween mood. So settle in. It's our first story. The story of Splatter and how one weirdo came to Florida and changed horror forever. The movie we're talking about this week, as I've said many times, the launching point for this conversation was not chosen just because it is a Florida movie. It is a movie that sits at a turning point for American cinema. To understand that further, we have to talk about the present. We have to talk about current horror movies and how we got to that place. I want to point out my main reference for this story before we go forward. It is an excellent book called Shock Value by Jason Zinneman, which details the change in the horror genre over the last hundred years or so, especially as it became one of the most popular genres in movie making in the 80s and why it became one of the most popular genres. Picture the stereotype of a horror movie. A bad guy, probably in a mask of some kind, arrives to a location and slowly picks off the people at location one by one until said baddie is eventually destroyed by a final girl. Those are slashers, and slashers are easily the most prominent subgenre within the horror genre itself. Nowadays, we have what people called elevated horror, scary movies that are a little less shock and awe and a little more subtle in their scares, about more complicated things. Think Midsummer, Get Out, The Lighthouse, The Witch, etc. And then there are monster movies, haunted houses, alien invasions, etc. 
The genre is so massive, you can't even cover how many subgenres there are. It's just, there's so many variations and combinations and fusions and twists. There, there, it's, it's a massive, massive genre. But horror historians agree that things took a drastic turn sometime around the 1970s. That's when a new generation of filmmakers came to prominence. The same generation that would feature such iconic filmmakers as the great Steven Spielberg would also produce an entire generation of horror creators. There's Wes Craven, who created the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and directed most of the Scream movies, which are some of my favorites. There's Toby Hooper, who directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist, another favorite of mine. There's Sean Cunningham, who created my favorite horror franchise, Friday the 13th. And there's John Carpenter, one of the greatest American filmmakers of all time, whose film legend is massive, but he is most notable for creating the slasher sensation that is simply called Halloween. Most of the movies that I mentioned just a minute ago would not exist without Halloween. Pretty much everyone loves the original 1978 flick starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Don Pleasance. It's scary, it's funny, it's autumnal, and it is timeless. But the men who were making these movies, they were all the same age, making movies that would eventually interact with each other in their own complicated ways. But what matters here is that in the 1980s, in the years after Halloween, pretty much all those movies came into existence and became multi-million dollar franchises. Friday the 13th in particular had 12 movies, eight of which came out in the 1980s. Most of those original movies were then imitated in a variety of ways, low budget, high budget, whatever. They produced multiple duplicates and they still exist. There's even a new Halloween movie right now it came out on friday <laughs> i mean it's still happening halloween has had 13 movies this is the 13th movie it's coming out in october can you even process that there's a million of these things this genre is massive and most importantly for the companies that fund them they bring in money in the last few months, the biggest movies have been Nope, a sci-fi horror movie directed by the great Jordan Peele, and a strange little horror indie movie called Barbarian that is getting rave reviews in the horror circles and massively overperformed what people expected at the box office. There is a Chucky TV show, a Hellraiser remake, and a sixth Scream movie in production right now. If you live in Orlando, nothing is more important than the horror events that you can go to, especially Halloween Horror Nights at Universal. It's a part of the culture, especially at this time of year. Horror just keeps growing. But here's the thing. Before those franchises launched into Hollywood greatness, making a movie about blood and guts was not only a surefire way to lose money, it was also downright frowned upon and sometimes considered even illegal. That was because of a fascinating element of filmmaking before this time that influenced so much of Hollywood filmmaking from the early half of the 20th century. It was a policy that was in place that was called the Hayes Code. That name, Hayes, spelled H-A-Y-S, is named for a man, William Harrison Hayes Sr. or Will Hayes. Mr. Hayes was a Republican politician in the years following the First World War. He helped run Warren G. Harding to the White House in 1920 and joined Harding's cabinet when he won the office. However, in 1922, Hayes found himself tied to a new task, cleaning up Hollywood in the Roaring Twenties. Because Hollywood, in 1922, was a bit of a mess, to say the least. In the years that the city of Hollywood had become the heart of American film production, the riches pouring into the city did what luxury always does. It led to tremendously bad behavior. 
Behind the scenes, the stars of Hollywood's biggest hits in the late teens and early 20s were getting into such foul behavior and folks across the nation started taking notice. The films themselves became more frivolous, more about glamour and depravity, with sexual content taking up more time on screen and other behaviors that folks would find less than reputable, including racism, consumption of alcohol and drugs, crime, violence, and just general debauchery. One event behind the scenes in particular really caught people's attention. Comedian Fatty Arbuckle went on trial for sexual assault and manslaughter of an actress named Virginia Rapp. The nationally publicized trial, though it led to an acquittal for Arbuckle, drew much criticism from the nation and the world at large. The country was turning a withering eye on the blossoming picture town, and the studios wanted to keep things in check. So they formed the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, a trade group bent on making a new code for filmmakers and thus placing new restrictions on the city at large. The world for filmmaking was complicated, especially concerning what they were and were not allowed to make. Quote, a major problem for studios at the time was the fact that motion pictures were not considered free speech under the American Constitution and therefore were not afforded any protections in their content. End quote. This made movie making a very expensive task because states or counties or cities would place restrictions on what could and could not be in the movies. So the studios would have to edit the movies before screening them in certain towns. So putting new rules in place of what could and couldn't be shown in the initial production could both straighten out the city's creators at large and also lead to more profit for the studios and artists. Will Hayes was the man that the studios wanted, a steadfast politician who understood the project and could work with the right people to get the city and its movies back on track. It took a long time to figure out what those codes were going to be. Even though Hayes had taken the role and the crackdown on illicit activity was in play, there was still nudity, crime, and violence in the movies of the 20s. In fact, some filmmakers started including more illicit material. That is because sound pictures had become a new development, synchronized dialogue, talkies for short, and they started putting in speakers in the theaters. That costed money. So if shock value could turn profit, then what did it matter? Who cares if, if we had to re-edit them? People were coming to see the movies in other locations because they wanted to hear the dialogue and the nasty stuff we were putting in. But with the collapse of the stock market in 1929, no one was making profit. No one, including the theaters, including the studios, and no one had any cash to spare on something as frivolous as a night at the cinema. When the country did eventually feel interested in returning as, as the Great Depression waned, the threat of censorship needed to be off the table, every penny counted, so the idea of putting in a code that the movies had to follow, which had been part of the discussion, was now finally needing to be executed. A production code needed to be made, and by 1934, a code was in place. Let's talk about what the Hayes Code restricted. There are a few broad topics. The Hayes Code restricted depictions of sex, crime, and even religion. No intimacy was allowed on screen, adultery was inappropriate to show, interracial marriage was not allowed on screen, and neither was homosexuality. Crime needed to be condemned, no glamorization of criminals was allowed, and drugs could not be shown being used. Even, as I mentioned, discussion of religion was restricted, meaning religion could not be mocked, talked down upon, priests couldn't be bad guys, and blasphemous language couldn't be used. You couldn't even say the word hell unless you were talking about hell in the religion, with a capital H. Violence was blocked, nudity was blocked, and even depicting childbirth was blocked in any way. 
Think of the things you see on basic cable every day. Most of that was not allowed under the Hayes Code. Now, the reason I tell you all that is to say this. Mainstream horror films during that time made by Hollywood are very different than the movies we talk about in the 70s onward. I just watched a few of those movies this year. House of Wax, The Blob, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and The Fly are just a few that I've watched. All of those movies are considered horror movies. None of them have any real human-on-human violence. There's no crime. There's no sex. None of the things that the Hays Code was looking out for. All of these movies came out pretty clean. All of the horror comes from monsters, or in the subtlety of the dialogue. Invasion of the Body Snatchers in particular stands out. That movie is mostly dialogue, no scares, no violence. It's all in the strange behavior of the characters, and it's creepy. It's a genuinely scary movie. So it was possible to make a movie with eerie subject matter without including a guy with a big knife breaking down someone's door. That type of genre didn't really come into popularity until over a decade after the Hayes Code was fully gone, amid periods of filmmakers making more progressive art and films being considered free speech. Nevertheless, despite the code, there were filmmakers during its existence who were making some really disgusting, nasty horror movies that would never see wide theatrical release. They didn't really care. They wanted to make this nasty stuff, and they were going to put it in theaters no matter what it took. People who made those movies were considered trashy weirdos, and those who went to see them were trashy just the same, or at least thought of that way. As Jason Zinneman says in his book Shock Value, the kinds of horror movies being produced in the 50s or 60s were either to be enjoyed by people stumbling into low-rent theaters for what they called midnight movies, or for people sitting in their cars at drive-ins just enjoying a little late-night entertainment, likely in the background while they smooched in their vehicles in the dark. So those mainstream movies like The Blob and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, they were drive-in movies too, but those were mainstream. If you wanted to see the nasty stuff, you could go to a drive-in or you could go to what some people would call adult theaters, if you understand my meaning. That's where you could see those cheap, nasty, bright red gore movies, if you could find a theater willing to show it, or a drive-in that was playing such awful things on their big screens. And that's what brings us to Herschel Gordon Lewis. Mr. Lewis was making movies in Florida that were, for all intents and purposes, low-rent trash, respectfully. They were cheaply produced by a group of filmmakers who were also making said adult movies. In the documentary Godfather of Gore, which goes deep into Lewis's career, they delve into those early years, those early movies that he was making. There is an interview uh, about that period with the director of the movie, Frank Henenlotter. Frank Henenlotter actually directed one of my favorite Midnight movies, which is a weird little horror movie called Basket Case. The man is uh, a very interesting character. Anyway, Frank describes the early movies that Herschel Gordon Lewis made as, quote-unquote, nudie cuties. And Frank also called them, quote, the stupidest films ever made, end quote. <laughs> Trash was the kind of thing that Herschel Gordon Lewis was trying to make. And yet, 60-something years after their initial release... We still know that they exist. His movies are on streaming services, and several filmmakers of the generation after him would cite this man, Herschel Gordon Lewis, as an inspiration. Why? Well, I tuned in to some of the movies, and as strange, as lewd, as ridiculous as most of them were, they were boundary-pushing of what you were allowed to show on screen, and Herschel Gordon Lewis was the pioneer. The movie we're here to talk about today was his most successful in his career. It's a movie 
called Blood Feast. You are listening to the brilliantly repetitive soundtrack from Blood Feast right now, written by, you guessed it, Herschel Gordon Lewis himself. It follows an Egyptian immigrant who is attempting to gather various body parts in order to hold a sort of cannibal dinner for an Egyptian god that he worships. The movie is just a hair over an hour long, 67 minutes long, and features comically wooden acting, neon red fake blood, and a snail paste plot, and, you know, I can't imagine that the depiction of Egyptian culture is, um, let's say, sensitively done. Occasionally, the Florida creeps through. There's motels that look distinctly Florida, a pool with Florida foliage around it, some classic one-story Miami houses. It's never stated to explicitly be in Florida, but it is. You can just see it in the air. The main conflict of the movie comes from one young woman who is studying these quote-unquote Egyptian rituals, and Ramses offers to cook dinner for her family, but what she doesn't know is that she's going to be the main course. Ah! Anyway, you get it. They kick his butt, the good guys win, the end. Like I said, the movie is very simple, very silly, very cheap, and yes, 67 minutes long. It still could be edited to be a bit shorter. There's some fluff in this 67-minute movie. To even call it a movie, a film, is generous. There's some episodes of TV that I watched this week that are longer than this movie. But it made an impact. But who was this guy, Herschel Gordon Lewis? Well, he was a professor, an English professor, who started making movies in Chicago. He was a part of a production company that was interested in making these very cheaply produced movie just to make a couple of extra bucks. How did he get to Florida? Well, we have to start with those adult movies that I was mentioning earlier, the nudie cuties. I hate saying that. I hate saying it, it is what it is. His filmmaking business that started in Chicago got its start making a, a movie in a genre that were based at these nudist camps, which of course do exist still in Florida. These nudist camp movies had been approved by the New York Film Board to be shown in New York, which was a massive and still is a massive movie market. So if you could make those movies, especially for cheap, then you could make a buck in the New York market and any other market that was willing to show them. Well, these nudist camps did exist in Florida. And so long as they were just nudity and nothing more intense than that, and as long as they featured beautiful nature, which was a part of these, then they would slip by the boards and make some pretty hefty cash in the New York market. A 1954 movie about one of these camps was filmed in Miami. It was called Garden of Eden, and it basically launched the entire trend long before Herschel Gordon Lewis was making these types of movies. The footage of these movies are so funny. They're, they're just completely insane. There's no doubt that they were filmed in Florida. If you look in the background, you can see these like Florida pine forests, some springs. In the documentary, they talk about how the springs had algae and snakes and bugs and, and gators and stuff. I'm like, yeah, dude, you were filming in Florida. What, what, did you, what did you expect to find? But it's very distinctly Florida, but nobody wants you to look at the beautiful Florida nature in the background. They want you to look at the the naked people in, in the foreground. It's very, very ridiculous. It's so funny. But that is what brought Herschel Gordon Lewis to Florida in the first place. It was just a backdrop for him to film these ridiculous, cheap movies. But Herschel was looking to do something more, and he was staying in Miami at a motel called the Suez Motel, which, as far as I can tell, does not exist anymore. In the documentary Godfather of Gore, Herschel Gordon Lewis says he was trying to make a movie that major motion picture studios, quote, could not make or would not make, end quote, but that these movies could still make money in theaters. Theaters could show them and people would be interested in seeing them. 
That's a tricky balance, and he was seeking to get it exactly right. That is why, when he was in Miami's North End staying at a motel called the Suez, he got the idea for his movie, Blood Feast, because there was a sphinx at the motel. As far as I can tell, that's the only reason that he chose Egypt, because there was a sphinx and they could shoot it, and he named the character Ramses. They actually used shots of this Sphinx statue at the Suez Motel in Miami in the movie. It's like the opening title card is this goofy looking Sphinx and then this little fake blood drops on screen and it says blood feast. Many scenes were actually filmed at this motel and then there's scenes, like I said, where they're running through suburban Miami. Palm fronds everywhere, low, one-story bungalows everywhere. I cannot explain how funny it is to see what's supposed to be this nasty, gory horror movie just basically laid over your aunt's neighborhood in South Florida. It's great. Herschel made Blood Feast in four days in Miami for about $24,000 without a script. He used a really nasty sheep's tongue on screen and used it to a gory splatter effect. It's probably the most disgusting scene of the movie, though it's mild for modern scary movies. When the flick finally came out, the producers printed barf bags that read, You may need this when you see Blood Feast. It proved accurate. The movie made people sick. That It was reported in the news that people were running out of the theater just completely nauseous and sick to their stomach. And while that may be repulsive for some people, that may push some people away, it didn't stop the movie from becoming a massive hit. It was produced for $24,000. It made a ton of money. It was the only true hit in Herschel Gordon Lewis's career. He tried to up the ante repeatedly over the next couple of decades, but nothing worked the way that Blood Feast worked because, honestly, no one had ever seen anything like it before. People call his movies the first splatter movies because they're kind of just gross and gory and red, but... They're nasty. They, they're gross. It was so successful because people were just coming to see what horrible thing had been put on screen just, just, just to witness it, the spectacle of it. It worked. By making it known that this movie was freaking people out, more people wanted to come and see it. Maybe it's because the Hayes Code had taken so much of the explicit content from cinema that when you wanted to see something nasty, when something really truly off the wall was being put on screen, you had to go see it. It was pushing the boundary. You had to see what they were doing. The curiosity is what brought you in, and it's what made that first movie a huge success. And it wasn't the only movie he filmed in Florida. He also filmed a movie called 2000 Maniacs in St. Cloud outside of Orlando. We're going to have to talk about that movie another time because it's a doozy. Another movie called Color Me Blood Red was filmed in Sarasota. A Taste of Blood was filmed in Miami. Do you notice that like half these movies have the word blood in them? Anyway, he filmed a handful of these movies right there in Miami. It seemed like his favorite filmmaking town. Florida clearly was the right place for Herschel Gordon Lewis. You know, maybe some people don't wear it with pride, but but I do. This weirdo trash filmmaker loved making movies in our state, for better or for worse. But the movies themselves, what, what, what they contained and, and what they were about, is not really the point. It's the impact that is his legacy. Jason Zinneman notes that Lewis did not shy away from showing gore on screen. He goes so far as to say, quote, in doing so, he invented gore, end quote. The book includes a great Herschel Gordon Lewis quote. Herschel Gordon Lewis had this to say about Alfred Hitchcock's famous movie, famous thriller, Psycho. He says, quote, I thought it cheated. Hitchcock showed the results but not the action because he couldn't risk getting turned down by theaters who wouldn't accept his product. 
we didn't care. End quote. H.G. Lewis was nasty. He didn't care who knew it. At a time where making gory shock films like this could get audience members literally arrested. They would arrest projectionists for showing trash cinema. Herschel Gordon Lewis, at the same time, was making stuff that was pushing the boundaries and expanding what a scary movie could be, even though the movies themselves weren't exactly high art. In the midst of Hollywood avoiding this much explicit content, Herschel Gordon Lewis was showing what shouldn't be seen, and it was working for him, against all odds. The idea of being willing to show the whole ordeal was game-changing, and filmmakers and horror would draw comparisons to that willingness for years to come. Tom Savini, the great horror special effects designer, loves Herschel Gordon Lewis. John Waters, the transgressive comic filmmaker, adores Herschel Gordon Lewis and is featured heavily in the documentary about him. My favorite, John Carpenter, a man whose films are cited as not just the greatest horror movies of all time, but the greatest American films of all time, he even cited Herschel Gordon Lewis as an influence. In the documentary, Herschel refers to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, and Halloween as, quote, our natural children, end quote. Before there was any of them, before any of those franchises came into existence, there was Herschel Gordon Lewis and Blood Feast. And when he passed away at the age of 90 in 2016, he passed away in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where he had lived for many years after he retired from his gory career and became a marketing professional for most of the rest of his life. That is not your typical Florida retiree, that's for certain. I think Herschel Gordon Lewis encapsulates the whole point of his career in this quote, the first quote in his documentary. He says this, speaking about himself, quote, I've often compared Blood Feast to a Walt Whitman poem. It was no good, but it was the first of its kind, end quote. <laughs> That kind of gets to the point for me. Some people might scoff at these movies and at this filmmaker. I'm not exactly a fan of the pictures themselves. I watched Blood Feast and I watched this documentary which had tons of his footage and it's not not exactly why I like scary movies. I'm not there for all the blood and guts. It's, it's not my favorite thing. Many of his movies, especially later in his career, they're just gross. They're just a, a filmmaker trying to see how far he can take it. But the man's influence cannot be ignored. No matter what the movie is, no matter what it's about, many, many filmmakers who create so much of film culture after him loved that movie. And to know where that began is important. If you love scary movies of any kind, as I do, you have Herschel Gordon Lewis to thank for what the genre has become. Thanks to those four days in Miami 60 years ago, Halloween will never be the same. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait Fright Minutes. I am so glad that you are here, and I hope that you are having a wonderful Halloween. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps the show grow, and I think now would be a great time to bring some new people onto this show. 
If you want to find the show, you can do so on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFM Pod. I will be posting pictures of Herschel Gordon Lewis and his filmmaking process down there in Miami on the socials. You're going to love it. I'm so excited to show you more of this bizarre movie so that you don't have to watch it because I'll be honest with you, maybe don't. It's it's not exactly a fun watch. It's an interesting one, but but not exactly the uh, uh, the most entertaining 67 minutes of my entire life. Nevertheless, head to the social medias, see the posts about it, and share the show with friends there. You can also send me an email at wfmpod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I would love to hear your favorite scary movies, what scary movies remind you of Florida. I hope to put out another episode about Florida scary movies that we aren't even covering in these three episodes to talk about that because, man, it's one of my favorite topics. But reach out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook or at the email. I really look forward to hearing from you. Again, I highly recommend that you check out the book Shock Value by Jason Zinneman. It is a wonderful contextualization about horror films throughout American cinema history, and it's just a great read. I really enjoyed getting to read it, so go check out that book. I'd like to thank my friend River Aparicio for creating the art that is used for this episode, the Wait Fright Minutes art. I love it. They created exactly what I was looking for, and I'm very, very proud to be featuring their art on the show yet again. You can check out their Etsy shop, Cast and Clay, in the episode description. All right, that is it for me this week. I will be back at you next Monday for another feature presentation. This time, we're going to be talking about alligators and the various movies that turn them into monsters. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, and as always, drink more water. I don't think I'm going to say drink more blood. That's gross. We don't want to endorse vampirism. Drink more water. That's better for you. Have a good week and happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs>